Hey guys, it's so good to see all of you. I was having to check to make sure that I hadn't already soaked through the front of my shirt, which would be kind of gross and sticky, but luckily I could hide behind the pulpit if I get too sweaty or if I begin to melt. <laughs> so I was told that Ted's iPad uh, at an Easter service got so hot it just turned off. And I'm pretty good at winging it. So if that happens to me, we're just gonna, I'll be like, and let's pray now. And then I'll call the worship team. We'll do extended worship. It'll be wonderful. So uh, I don't think that'll happen. Hey, if you will, before it happens, though, why don't we turn in our Bibles to Psalm 23, uh, the most beloved Psalm uh, in our book of Psalms. one that is so familiar. Remember last time I was here, I, we looked through John 3.16. And I have this, this love of, of scripture that's so familiar that it loses its, its, uh, its meaning for us. And in re-evaluating this text and asking the question, why is it so? Why has it been such a beloved psalm? Why is it such a beloved verse? And there's usually a pretty legitimate reason for its popularity because there's something deep and meaningful for us as people that gives us incredible insight into what God is like and and how it is that we are to relate to him. And Psalm 23 is a psalm that opens up for us uh, what it looks like to rest in Christ. It really is a, a psalm of rest. And rest in our restless age is something that uh, is very difficult for many of us. It's difficult for me. I am a restless man. I'm driven uh, by the desire to do new things all the time. And that's good and bad. Uh, But God does not intend his people to be burned out. Uh, He does not intend his people to try to perfect in the flesh what the spirit has begun. But he also isn't calling us to stagnation. He's not calling us to stillness without activity. What he's calling us to is rest in the midst of our unrest. And this is what I want to open up for us today. So if you will, look with me um, at Psalm 23. Let's read this familiar psalm and we'll get right into it. The psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, I think the psalm is perfectly summed up in one sentence from St. Augustine from his book Confessions when he said, O Lord, my soul is restless until I find rest in thee. And and I want us to think today about what Sabbath rest, what is this rest that Hebrews tells us to strive to enter? What is the rest that Jesus offers when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Because if we look at the Christian life, the Christian life is difficult. And the reality of living is that our lives are marked by undulation. They go up and down. There's difficulties all around us. We will face trials. We will face loss. We will face pain. We will face persecution. So how do we rest when there are all these things that haunt us, that create anxiety and worry and fear? 
How do, we, how do we rest in God when we're concerned about, about how it is it will provide for our family? When we're concerned about what the future might hold and what we did in the past, how do we find rest when we struggle with a guilty conscience? These are the things that I believe this psalm addresses beautifully. And I want to give you a, a picture. Uh, when I lived here in uh, Temecula, I actually lived in French Valley. I remember we moved into this house and my son, Henry, at the time was, was uh, five years old. And I took him over to this little park and they were doing baseball practice. And I was trying to get my son interested in something neither my wife nor I have ever been interested in, which is any kind of sporting activity. Is this a basketball field, right? No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> And so, uh, so I took him to this baseball practice and the kids, I go, I go, Hey, Henry, you want to play, you want to play baseball? Want to play t-ball? Look at it. Doesn't that look fun? And he was like, watching, he's like, I think I do. And then the coach started, so we sat in the, sat in the bleachers and we're just watching them practice. And then the coach started having the kids run from home base to first base and back to, back to home base and just over and over again. And Henry looks up at me, he just had turned five and he goes, daddy, I don't, I don't want to play baseball. And I said, I go, why not? And he goes, I like to rest. I like to rest. And Henry does really have an incredible gift for inactivity, <laughs> still at 11. But that kind of rest that my son uh, was, was speaking of that he desires is not the kind of rest that Jesus is calling us into. That's not the kind of rest that he's calling us into. And see, the beauty and the simplicity of this song is directly connected with its depth and its strength. And what I want you to see is when you read this, you see that it is not sheer escapism. It's not a person that's avoiding their problems or avoiding their difficulties. It's someone who is looking head in with, a, with an absolute realism at what is occurring around them. They're weary but they recognize that God is the source of their rest. They are surrounded by enemies, but they recognize that God prepares a table for him in the midst of his enemies. he's, He's fallen off the path, but he recognized that God is the one who restores his soul. See, again and again, what you see is not inactivity, but what you see is rest in the midst of unrest. I want to keep driving that idea into your, into your mind because you are not a person who cannot have rest if you're in unrest. The question is, is can you trust Jesus when your life is plagued with difficulty? Can you come to him and truly believe uh, that he is the one who brings provision to our lives and guidance to our lives and companionship to our lives? Because those are the three elemental needs of every human being who has ever walked the face of the earth. We, We all need provision We all need guidance. We all want to know where we're going, what it is that God would have for us, what we're supposed to do. And we all long to be known as well as to know because we are relational beings made in the image of a relational God. And so what I want us to do today is to discover that in Jesus, if we all need provision, if we all need guidance, if we all need companionship, that we need look no farther than Christ that he himself is our rest. And another word for rest or peace in the Hebrew is shalom, which means more than just a stillness of heart. It means a, well, a, a holistic well-being uh, for our lives. And we find that in Christ. This is why Jesus-centered uh, Christianity is the only kind of Christianity. You remove Christ and you, you don't have Christianity. Because Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life, which means that he is our provision. Jesus himself said, I am the way, 
which means that he is our guidance. He says, follow me. He never says where he's going. He just says, follow me. He says, I am the good shepherd, which means he is our friend because he also said, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends for all that the father has made known to me. I have, I have told you. And so this is where we find our shalom, our rest. When Jesus is in the center, guys, peace follows. Remember what happens after his resurrection? Every time Jesus would appear in the midst of his disciples, what was the first thing out of his mouth? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Rest. Rest is found in abiding in Christ. And abiding simply is a, it's a word that you don't use in your normal modern context, but it simply means to remain in and with him. That we do not worship a God who is distant. We don't look back to a God back there or to a God that's purely up there in the future, but we look to a God, this Jesus, which speaks of the present context. Our worship is defined and, and hinges upon the absolute belief that Jesus meant what he said when he said, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. We worship a God who is present and that is the source of our rest. So Hebrews 4.11 says, therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. And what I want us to do is to discover, notice striving, that's a, a work. It's hard to remain in Christ. The world is vying for our attention. Oh, thank you, Jesus. If only that one little cloud. Wasn't it like the Lord just, it's like he blessed me. That was like, that was anointing right there, just cloud coverage. He covers us with his love and wings. I was praying. I'm like, Lord, I, I am melting. Um, so this is what I want us to ask ourselves today. Am I finding rest in the unrest? And the power of this psalm is that it opens up for us what I believe are six facets of this shalom, a life that is marked by Christ at the center, okay? So let's dig into the, into the psalm. I don't want you to melt as well, so let's get right into it. First of all, the first mark of shalom, of restfulness, um, biblical restfulness, is contentment. No, please, God, please, no. <laughs> What's the first line? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not what? Want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And essentially what the psalmist is saying is that the, the man, the woman who has Christ has what? Everything. And what that really means is that the Lord is my shepherd. To say that the Lord is my shepherd is to, is to say that God is responsible for you. See, one of the greatest difficulties in the Christian life is to allow God to be responsible for your life. And that comes from all sorts of things, uh, you know, bad father figure growing up, uh, the world swaying for your attention, the idea that somehow you know what is best for you. And what we find is that our wants then are, are these, these chasing after things, good things often, family, good job security, all the things that Christ comes to give. He comes to bring what? Provision, guidance, and companionship. But often we seek those things apart from Christ because we forget that we belong to him. And you may not be a Christian today, and in, in, in the rest that, that comes, comes from beginning to recognize that, that the moment you try to be your own master is the moment you become inhuman, it's the moment that you lose sight of what you were created for because we make horrible masters. 
And when we chase after our wants apart from Christ, what we do is we become frustrated, we become restless, we try to, once again, perfect in the flesh what has begun in the spirit. And so what, what we're told here is that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We come to Christ and through him, he provides us with what is necessary for living. This isn't a prosperity gospel. It's about what brings internal rest to the soul. It's about what brings peace in the midst of of a world that is not marked by peace. It's about what brings shalom. The Lord is my shepherd means that I give you, my God, responsibility for me. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses seven through 11, he says, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Notice, find pasture for sheep means that they find provision for well-being. They find protection. They come in the door and they they are now protected um, from the attacks of the thieves and the robbers. And they have the food that is necessary to survive. And they have a shepherd who watches over them. Contentment is the outcome of allowing God to be responsible for your life. And Jesus goes on to say, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and that they may have it what? Abundantly. But how can anyone say that they are experiencing abundant life if they are not content? If they are not content. And maybe that it is, is that you've set your wants upon things that aren't going to bring life because until we put Jesus, remember what, remember what um, Jesus told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. But that's not how we function in life. We chase after things and we think because they're normal desires of the human heart, you can't eradicate desires from the human experience. That would mean to eradicate what it means to be human. What we need is a supreme desire that controls all other desires. And so Christ calls us to himself. And so we look to him. And so here it is, is that Jesus says they will have life and have it abundantly. And then he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Our contentment comes in the fact that God is so willing to knit himself to our experience that he is willing to enter into our pain, into our difficulties, and take into himself um, all of our brokenness and our rebellion so that we can experience the freedom that only he has and that only he can give. And there we find our contentment. Because all the things that we chase in life, think about the things that you're driven by. If I have this job, then I'll be happy. If I could have this husband or this wife, then I would be happy. If I, you know, once I have children, then I'll be happy. Once I have a bigger home, then I'll be happy. See, our contentment is often driven by the elusive chase after things that are exactly that, elusive. They do not satisfy the soul because God has created us in his image, which means we are meant for him and the soul will find no satisfaction until we are reunited with him through Christ. And so there is our contentment. There it is. And, and I want you to understand that we misunderstand the glory of God. We, under, we misunderstand it because God's glory is his love. It's not his separation 
from broken humanity. God's glory is his self-giving love. He does not keep his fullness for himself, but communicates and demonstrates that he wants to find his own contentment in being our shepherd. Have you ever thought about that? It's a scary thing when you think about a God who is perfect. We often hear theological expressions that in order for God to be God, he can't need anything. And yet he chooses in his sovereign freedom to want us. And because of that, he now and forevermore will never exist without us. He's knit himself. He will forever be something that he was not before the foundation of the world. He is the God man. Think about that. That'll blow your mind. That just makes your brain unravel. But as a shepherd, that's our good shepherd. He is content. He finds his contentment in us allowing him to be our shepherd. But that means that we're sheep. And what are sheep? I'll tell you one thing that sheep are. They're stupid. The other thing that sheep is, and this guy, um, I, I preached this, and, and this man came up to me and goes, you know what, you said something that wasn't true. Because I said that you'll never meet a wild sheep. And then he's like, well, there is doll sheep. Those aren't sheep. Those are, those are rams. I'm not going to call them sheep. When we think of sheep, we think of the, the little lamb. We think of she, the, the white, fluffy animals that have no intelligence in their eyes, who have a sweet innocence, but their innocence is directly connected to their ignorance. And, and the thing is, is that when you think of sheep, not only are they, are they dumb, um, they're, they're, they're animals that, if, when you think of domesticated sheep, the word domesticated means that it is owned by someone. I was in Iceland, and I remember wandering through, through this tundra in Iceland and coming across this, these stray sheep that were in this random cave. And, remember that, Zach? <laughs> and I was like, there's sheep in there, but they're not wild sheep. They're possessed by someone. And, and what, what that tells us is that, that we need to remember as sheep that we desperately need our savior. Think about it. Sheep are not smart animals. Have you ever seen a circus sheep? You're not, you never went to the circus. And you're like, next, we're going to have the sheep run on the ball. That, that doesn't happen. You can't train one. You can't train one. That's why they wander. That's why Jesus says, I will leave the 99 to find the one. But this, this shows us our desperate need. I, I think one of the greatest difficulties in the Christian life today in expressing the gospel to a world that doesn't see its need for him any longer. Um, when you communicate to people that have everything that they think that they need, uh, is that they're missing, they're missing the fact, the basic fact of human life is that we don't recognize that the only thing that will satisfy us is having a shepherd to provide for us, to care for us, to cover us. And this is why we are not content. First Timothy chapter six, verses six and seven says, but godliness and contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. That is a powerful statement because as sheep, we belong to the shepherd, which means that anything that we may, might possess actually belongs to him. And anything that we have been given are even the things that we are born with, our intelligence, our giftings, all of those things are a gift from God. And when we look to God, the Lord is as our shepherd and say, I shall not want, we are recognizing that all that I am, all that I have, everything that I need is found only in you. And you remember that in the New Testament, we are called a royal priesthood. And if, if you look back to the Levitical law, what you will see is that God said specifically of the priests that they will have no inheritance in the land for the Lord, their God was their inheritance. 
So this is the first facet of rest. How are you doing so far? Are you resting in that? You're like, good. I'm not asking if you're content. <laughs> you're like, I'm surviving right now in this moment. It's really hot. But are you content? Are you, are you satisfied in Jesus? Are you content in the midst of your unrest? Okay, let's look at the second one. So, so here we find in verse two um, that we are not only is contentment the outcome of resting in Christ, but we, those who rest in Christ recognize that they are under his care. And it says that he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. And green pastures and still waters speak of the thoughtfulness of the shepherd, making decisions based upon what is best for his flock. Shepherds don't eat grass. They bring their sheep to the, to the pasture because that is what is best for them. And you know what? They stay out with the sheep all night long instead of going into the comfort of a home which is what I would call what is best for a human being, but that's not what's best for sheep. And so the shepherd brings the sheep to where they need to be. And notice once again, it's not inactivity. He makes them lie down, but he also causes them to move. He, he makes them lie down in green pastures, but he also leads them beside still waters. So even when they're moving, there is tranquility in the midst of activity. And this once again is the recognition that suppressed unrest is not rest. And what I mean by that is that often in our, in our modern sensibility, what we have done to cope with the anxieties of life and the difficulties that we are faced with every day is that we begin to turn to all sorts of, of things to get our mind off of the thing that's troubling us. And so we find all sorts of things to escape into. Can be, it can be drugs, it can be alcohol, it can be entertainment, it can be work. And you may have the appearance of one who has it all together, but, but false, uh, false restfulness is not rest. That's not rest. The one who allows Christ to be their shepherd is able to deal honestly with the difficulties in life and at the same time have a strong confidence that Christ will provide, that Christ will provide. And not only will he provide, but he will guide me through this. And then though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And this is the power of, of the ability to see through our trials for what they are. Because I think that we have forgotten that in the cross of Calvary, when Jesus said, it is finished, he was declaring with an absolute certainty that victory was accomplished we live in an age where God is already victorious. And we long for the day where all of creation will recognize that victory, but we are told it is coming. We're told that there will be a day when every knee shall bow. We're told that all creation groans for its redemption. We're told that God was reconciling the entire world to himself through Christ Jesus. And when we have that in mind, we recognize that we can trust his care for us because the reason that we move into these, these escapes is because we don't really trust Jesus with our lives. When things get really hot, when the fires burn intensely, what we think would be God's rest for us is, is his ability to get us out of the situation. But Jesus is not one who gets us out of the trials. He says, I will walk through the trial with you. 
And if we ever preach a gospel that says, hey, give your life to Jesus and then your life's gonna be awesome, we preach a false gospel, another gospel. And Paul says very clearly, if anyone preaches another gospel then the gospel which has been preached to you, let him be accursed. And there was a lot of people out there preaching that, you know, if you wanna have success in life and you wanna, you wanna experience, you wanna experience the, the fact that God has a perfect plan for you and you just give your life to Jesus. Listen, God has a perfect plan for you. It might be quite difficult. <laughs> I, was Peter's plan a perfect plan? Uh, everybody wants to be crucified upside down. That sounds awesome. The church is marked by confidence and courage and shalom in the midst of serious persecution, serious difficulty. You guys, America is not gonna get easier. We're, we live in a difficult time. In Portland, um, the unemployment rate is still 10%. We have kids moving from all over the country, mainly educated, college-educated kids who can't find jobs. You know, we have, a, we have about a quarter of what should be coming in in tithes and offerings in a church of over 1,000 people because nobody works, and we have the world's barista population going to our church. You know, for me to tell them that God's going to give you everything you ever needed and wanted sounds a little empty to the average kid who has a degree in architecture and can't find a job and is working for $6 an hour at Stumptown Coffee. I mean, that's not very appealing. But if we understand that God's care is, is a care that carries not only now, but into the future where all tears will be wiped away, it allows us to see through the trials for what they are. They're, they're temporary and that God's presence is with me in spite of it. And this is exactly what the psalmist sees. Romans 8, verse 16, I think expresses this perfectly when Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Notice how he deals with the difficulties is that he says, this is nothing compared to the glory that is eternal. And what we need is an eternal perspective if we're going to truly trust in God's care for us. But that is the outcome of abiding in Christ. So contentment leads to a recognition that God cares and will care for us. To know the rest of God, which comes from being under his care, is to rest in the unrest. And this is what I want us to see. Look at verse 3. Because the third aspect is not only under his care, but we are upheld. And this is one that is so good for us. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now to say that he restores my soul is, re is recognizing that there was something wrong with his soul. Notice that, it's, that it's, it's help and rescue is happening here. God is rescuing this man, this woman from their own brokenness. Why would God need to restore our souls? Because we are sinners by nature. But the trust of the Christian is the strong belief that we can begin again and again every day, trusting that God will restore that which is broken. Jesus knows, you guys, that your faith is weak and that your obedience is shallow. I mean, the mark of the Christian life should be, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The power of the gospel is not found in our strong faith and our amazing obedience. The power of the gospel is found in our victorious king in spite of our weakness, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our daily failing him. Each day is a day where you have the audacity to go before your king and ask you to, Ask him to uphold you that day. And this is exactly what he does. 
You see, we see here that God is willing to restore our souls, reminds us that God is willing to get in the midst, in the thick of our sin. That God's sovereignty is his freedom to move in love towards sinners. That no matter how deep a hole you dig, he gets deeper still. And I think that this is a powerful picture of God's compassion is that he is affected by our brokenness. And in Jesus, not only is he affected by our brokenness, but in Jesus, he takes it from us into himself so that he might rescue and help us and knit himself to us. Remember what I said? God finds his contentment in us allowing him to be our shepherd. He knows what he's dealing with. Sheep are dumb. They stray, they, they do dumb things. Sin, and, and really, if, when you really think about what sin is, it's foolishness. It's foolishness, it's rebellion, it's the desire to be our own gods, to make our own decisions. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But that, all that means for us, you may say, well, I've never said that. Well, you may never said that. You may say you believe in God, but you may act like an atheist, a practical one. Do you live with the strong belief that God is there not only to bring contentment, not only to bring care, but to uphold you in the, in the midst of the fact that you will doubt and you will fail. See, our, our strength comes from, from in, that in our weakness, God gives us the power to love and to obey him. But we must understand that he is here to rescue and to help us. He restores the soul and then he sets him on a path of righteousness for his namesake. God restores us for his own glory. And that he is glorified when his children depend upon him in everything. Um, I think a wonderful picture of this is found in Matthew 14. The Gospels are so filled with stories that give us incredible spiritual insights into life. You remember that story in Matthew 14 when Jesus walks on the water, Peter sees him. We know the story. We learned it in, when we were kids in, in Sunday school. But we, we never think about the depth of what's being said. Peter gets, he says, Lord, if that's you, let, tell Tell me to come to you and I'll walk, I'll walk to you. And, and so Peter and his, his, his strong belief that his faith was something more than really that it was. And Jesus says, come to me. And Peter gets out of the boat. And as long as he was looking at Jesus, he was walking on the water. But you remember what it says that he, he saw the turbulence and the intensity of the white waves around him. Notice his, his eyesight went from, from his savior to his circumstances. And the moment it was confronted with his circumstances, he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately, we are told, Jesus reached out and grabbed him. And see, the power of God's ability to uphold us is that Jesus doesn't sink. I was like, man, that's so good. He doesn't sink. That's my security. I sink all the time, but Jesus doesn't sink. And the moment we cry out, Lord, save me, he is there to meet us in the midst of our brokenness and grab a hold of us. This is an outcome of rest. Abiding in Christ is the strong belief that he will uphold you, that he will restore you, that he will heal you, and that he will set you on a right path. God, I think a good way of putting it, is willing to take our concerns and make them his own. He could be against us. God has every right to be against us. But instead, he chooses to not only be for us, but to be with us forever. I just want you guys to hold to this. This is so powerful. We need this rest. The church, the world is looking to the church to see, is this Jesus that you say you believe in really who he is? And if they look at us and they see us that we're, that we're 
not content, that we're, that we're fearful and, and anxiety-ridden people, and that, we're, that we, we lift our hands in worship, but then when we go to, into our, our, our lives for the rest of the week, we're, we're plagued by all the same things that everyone else is plagued with, with no security in the world. And how, why would anyone want that? Come follow the Jesus that I don't really believe is there. <laughs> but, but the songs are good. I like to sing. That's not, that's not satisfying. What the people are looking to is they want to know that there is a God who rescue, can rescue them and we have to reflect that rescue, which means that we have to reflect that rest. Look with me next at, at verse four. We're moving quickly through this. I don't wanna keep you in the sun forever and I am gonna be paying for the sun and my eyeballs tomorrow. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Mark chapter five, verse six, Jesus said, do not fear, only believe. And I think the outcome of one who rests in Christ is one who is fearless. One who is fearless. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but we're told the fear of man is a snare. And man, the church is in such desperate need for courageous people. In the book of Acts, you never see people praying for the salvation of the lost. You know what they pray for? The courage to share salvation with the lost. And see, we, I'll pray for my loved ones who don't know Jesus, but will you be fearless? Will you be confronted with difficulty and pain in your life and, and still have the strong confidence that in the face of even something as, as terrifying as death, I'm watching one of my dearest friends die of cancer right now. He's, got, he's been fighting a brain tumor for three years. He's got an eight-year-old daughter, a 10-year-old daughter, and a 13-year-old daughter. And the reality is, is that he probably won't make it through the next year. Him and his wife became believers six months before he woke up in the middle of the night on January 1st of 2010 um, to discover a golf ball-sized brain tumor in his, in his head. And he has survived the last three years, praise God. But they've had to go into his head three times. He's been at death's door multiple times. He's gotten horrible infections. He barely can walk right now. And yet I have never seen a man that lives so fearless. He's afraid. Don't get me wrong. I meet with him almost every week. And we go for walks. Um, and now he can't walk. So I go and sit with him at a coffee shop. And, and he expresses to me his fears of death. He's, his fear of not seeing his girls graduate. His fears of what will happen to his wife and his girls once he's not there. But the strong confidence, see, fear, fearlessness is not the ability to not be afraid. It's the ability to confront your fear with the belief that Jesus is with you and will never leave you nor forsake you. And it was amazing to me to see a couple who had only been believers for six months exert more faith and confidence in Christ in the midst of real trial and real heartache and real brokenness because death sucks. It's not part of God's original plan for us. That's why it hurts so bad. And, it, and, and yet they believe that, oh, death, where is your sting? For God has been victorious over death through Jesus. And so they're able to take their fears to the Lord. And that, my friends, is fearlessness. I am terrified every time I have to preach. I couldn't tell if it was just hot or if I was scared before the service today, but generally I'm pretty nervous but my love for Jesus surpasses my fear of speaking. 
And so what we need is an object that we can truly set our affections on that will get us through the things we're afraid. And I think the, the reason that we're afraid to, be, um, to, to look at the world uh, and to go into the world as, as followers of Christ is because our love for him is not strong enough. It is not until we rest in him, which means that you love him, that you allow him to be responsible for you, that you allow him to guide you and provide for you, that you will truly be able to live fearlessly. Lives controlled by fear is merely a reflection of faithlessness that runs rampant among us. And I want you guys to understand this. Karl Barth says something so powerful. He says, peace is in danger today because there are so few who are free. And Jesus in the center means that peace follows. And to be free means that you're free from the fear of man, free from, this, from those snares that, that come our way through anxieties. How many people do you know that are enslaved by their fears? And maybe that's you today. I, I've been there. I've, had, I've lived with tremendous anxieties. And I just want to say specifically, the Lord just gave a word. Caitlin, if you're here, God wants to release you of your fear of cougars. He's going to be healed. <laughs> oh, we all have our fears. And what's funny is I've actually been quite afraid of cougars in the past too. <laughs> but this is the reality. Do we trust Jesus? Always what we're confronted with is God gives us the ability in the freedom that he has set us free. That freedom is the freedom to trust him and to obey him and to walk with him. So, Romans 8.31, the perfect verse that speaks to, to the confidence that we should have and the fearlessness in which we should walk. What then shall we say to these things, to the things that hurt us, to the things that can harm us? If God is for us, who can be what? Against us. We know the verse. Do you live the verse? Do you live the verse? Look at verse five. Only two verses left, guys. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This facet of one who is resting in Christ is a life that is unworried. Not only are they fearless, but they are unworried. And I want, once again, to point out, to prepare a table before you in the presence of enemies is what he is saying is, is a table represents home in the ancient world. And what he's saying is that, that even when I'm surrounded by those who would want to destroy my life, I am at home as long as I am with my God. There's shalom here. There's wholeness. There's comfort. He says, and not only is there, is there home, there's, there's, there's provision, there's, but it's really speaking of companionship. And he says, and this companionship leads to an anointing and, and a cup that overflows, a Lord that daily loads us with benefits. One who trusts in the Lord is able to be grateful for everything they see around them. I'm always suspicious of people that can think nothing to be thankful for. Thanksgiving is one of the true marks of a life that has been set free by Jesus. And our ability to see the gift of breath in our lungs, health in our children, a home over our heads, all of these things comes from that confidence that I have companionship with Christ. Because here's the thing, guys, until we have a right relationship with God, we cannot have a right relationship with others, nor can we even have a right relationship with ourselves. See, our brokenness breaks us in three directions, upward, outward, and inward. 
And it is essential that we recognize that when we come to Christ, he come, that restoration of our relationship with him immediately brings restoration with those around us and with our, in our own selves. And it allows us to release our anxieties. And we cannot believe and worry. We cannot believe and worry unless in our belief, we cast our concerns at his feet. See, you're going to be confronted with things that stress you out. But to be unworried doesn't mean that you're never going to be afraid. You're never going to be unstressed. What it means is that you're willing to take your cares to him because he cares for you. That's what 1 Peter says. Do you believe that? I think that is the... the see, see, it's not... It's not it's not a, an unwillingness to acknowledge what is real or difficult in life. What it is, is, is the ability to say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to overcome this, but I trust you with it. I trust you with it. And rebellion against God, Jesus never tells us to not be worried about that. <laughs> you should be really worried about that. This is not to be worried about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll put on. He's, he's, in, he's assuming that you're trusting in him. But what creates worry and anxiety in life is when we try to control our lives in our own ability. So Romans 8, 32, it says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's a pretty magnificent statement. Once again, the verse is meaningless if it is not applied and lived. We need a practical Christianity, a practical mysticism, a belief of God's presence and a willingness to step out in faith and do something about it, to live it out. Finally, I want you to see in verse six, the final facet of one who is at rest in Christ is joy. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice he's already insinuating that he is in the house of the Lord and that that will continue even past death's door. And joy is the outcome. It noticed, not happiness. The pursuit of happiness is the greatest lie that America has ever produced. It's unfortunate that it's in, that it's, that it's in our documents that, dec that declare what we are to be as Americans that everyone has the right to the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is driven by our circumstances. Joy is something that is internal, something that is lasting and is not driven by what is happening around us, but, but is driven by what is transformed within us because we have been born again. Our happiness comes only once we find our joy in Christ. Happiness comes and goes, but joy is truly a rare experience. It is the outcome of one who perceives and lives and abides in the presence of the living God. John 15, 11, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so I wanna leave you with this verse from Romans eight thirty nine: Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. So the one who rests in Christ is what? One who has guidance, or excuse me, provision. Jesus is the, is the bread of life. One who has guidance. Jesus is the way. One who has companionship. He is the good shepherd. 
the outcome of this shalom, this rest, Christ at the center, is that we will find contentment no matter what. We're content because the one who has Christ has everything. We will recognize that we are under his care and can trust him with our lives. We will find ourselves with this, with this audacity to hope in a new beginning every day because Christians are, by definition, perpetual beginners. The belief that every day his mercies are new and that he will, rest, he will uphold us even though we sink. Jesus doesn't sink. We will be fearless in that we will fear nothing but God because the fear of the Lord is what sets us free and brings about that friendship. But the fear of the things of this world, what can this world do to me if I am in Christ who is victorious over all things? We will be unworried because we can take our worries directly to the feet of the cross and find a God who is compassionate and is concerned for us. So we cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And how can that not lead to joy? One who lives with that something in their eye that says they've got something that I do not have. It's called being spirit-filled, friends. And this is what our shalom looks like. And so I ask you, are you one who can say, nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, my Lord? Is the Lord your shepherd? Let him be responsible for you. Let him be responsible for you.